Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. The prominent complementarian theologian Wayne Grudem has recently changed his mind about a crucial issue in the church today. Last month, Grudem told evangelical scholars at the Evangelical Theological Society that a closer reading of 1 Corinthians 7.15 had led him to conclude that the Bible permits divorce when there is abuse. We wanted to speak with Professor Grudem about the catalyst that sparked his shift in thinking and what the implications are for his theology and the church's practice. Today is Wednesday, December 4th, and you're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. And I'm Mark Galley, editor-in-chief. All right, Mark, so I thought it might be good for us to get a gut check about this particular news that came out a little bit before Thanksgiving, and it'd be great to just get your perspective on it. I was interested. I'm always interested when anybody in their senior years, like myself, change their mind about anything, because that's the time when you're tempted to be stubborn and stick in your ways. Made me raise my, you know, I already had respect for for Dr. Grudem, but it raised a little bit higher that someone's willing to reconsider, read the Bible one more time, pray a little bit longer. So I thought that was a good thing. And then I, I would I was interested in thinking, okay, well, uh, how did he come to that conclusion? What might that tell us about how we understand and read Scripture? And, you know, a bunch of theological questions that, that resulted from that. Yeah, this is really interesting it, for, for some of the reasons that you talked about right there, which is that we are not necessarily always privy to places where people who have huge followings basically say that I've changed my mind about something. And I feel like it's even rarer that it comes for sort of something that's like so hot button and has huge stakes to attached to it today. And I think that's part of what I'm really intrigued about. I'm in different Christian circles where Dr. Grudem is extremely respected and revered. And so I really imagine that his opinion and weight on this is going to have a lot of implications, I think, for how people are going to be pastoring and shepherding people in their marriages. But I think it will be really good to have kind of a deeper inside look about what caused him to speak out about this which is cool because we get to talk to him. Yeah, we're actually doing an experiment today. We often talk about the people who've made the news, and Morgan and I decided we'd like to talk to the person who's made the news and just see how, how it goes. So we're grateful that Dr. Grudem is with us today. So why don't you tell us a little bit about him for folks who are less familiar with his contributions. Wayne Grudem is professor of theology and biblical studies at Phoenix Seminary. He's the author of some 22 books, including most recently Christian Ethics, as well as being general editor of the English Standard Version Study Bible. He is perhaps the most well-known complementarian theologian and as such the co-founder of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. In fact, his book Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, co-authored with John Piper, was the Christianity Today Reader's Choice Book of the Year in 1992. Great to have you on the show with us today, Dr. Grudem. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Let's just dive right into talking about some of your views and give you a chance to lay them out for those in our listener base who are not as 
familiar with them. Can you tell us a little bit about how you have developed a theology of marriage and divorce over the years? Well, the simplest and most important answer is it comes from reading the Bible over more than 60 years now, then studying theology at, at Westminster Seminary, and then in my doctoral work, and then teaching since 1977. So I guess that's about 44 years teaching college students and then seminary students most of that time. The traditional view that I took is the major Protestant view since the Reformation, and that is that divorce is justified only in cases of adultery or in cases of desertion by an unbelieving spouse. Those are Matthew 19.9 and 1 Corinthians 7.15 give justification for that. Not everyone has agreed with that, but that's been the majority view, the dominant view in conservative Protestant theology, and that's the view I held. And in my book published last year, Christian Ethics, the textbook, that was the position I argued for. But a couple of things changed. And the, the change came about because of two things. One was hearing about some very, I can't say anything, but, but horrible cases of ongoing physical abuse that had persisted over decades, where the wife, who was the graduate of a Christian college and had met her husband at a Christian college, thought it was her Christian duty to remain silent about the abuse and remain in the marriage, and she endured long-standing suffering. That was just the most recent of a number of other cases like that, where my instinct my, what I would call my theological instinct. I just can't see that this is the way God wants his children to live. I know someone could object, and already I had one person object to me and say, you shouldn't change your view on what the Bible says because of an instinct. And I didn't, because I, I changed it because of facts, but I'll talk about that in a minute. I changed my view because the instinct led me to look again at Scripture. When I looked again at Scripture, I found new evidence that had not been discovered by anybody before in history, as far as I can tell. And that was what led me to change my mind. And I could say one more thing about theological instincts. As I mentioned, I've been teaching Bible and theology classes since 1977, so that, that's now just about 43 years. And I've been reading the Bible for almost 60 years, over 60 years. And so my theological instincts are not totally untrustworthy or unreliable. They, they, they give me some reason for looking into a matter more deeply. But the facts that made me change my mind we're discovering new examples of a Greek phrase behind 1 Corinthians 7.15 in such cases where Paul talks about when uh, a believing wife or husband can get a uh, can legitimately consider the marriage to be ended and, and get a divorce. Let me just interrupt to say, uh, yeah, there is a difference between letting your ex the experiences you have in life dictate what you believe and letting experiences of in life cause you to reread Scripture thinking, okay, now that I've had this experience, let me read Scripture again and see if there's something I've missed. Sounds to me like that's Mark, what you've done. That was what I meant, but you said it about, a lot better. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering if you can just kind of go back to these Scripture passages that you mentioned around divorce, both the one in Matthew and the one in 1 Corinthians, and if you wouldn't mind reading them to our listeners and unpacking them a little bit. In Matthew 19.9, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. And there are arguments about the interpretation of that verse, but I think the most common understanding, and I think the correct one, is that if someone divorces his wife because of adultery and marries someone else, then it is not wrong. That's one verse. Divorce legit being not required, but permitted in the case of adultery. And then over in 1 Corinthians 7.15, Paul says, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So Paul says, in such cases, and I wondered about the plural expression. In Greek, it's entois toyutois. And those three words together, 
And that phrase, represented by in such cases, that phrase doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament, and it doesn't occur anywhere else in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And I think commentators in the past have assumed that it, it doesn't, they didn't need to or weren't able to find any other examples. They've said that it refers to desertion by an unbeliever. That's what such cases means. But I did something that I don't think anybody else has done before, and that is using the facilities of the TLG or Thesaurus Linguae Graecae database at the University of California, Irvine. I did a search of, of in such cases in that phrase in literature outside the New Testament, and I analyzed 52 other examples of that expression. And I found that in a number of examples, the phrase in such cases referred to more kinds of situations than the original example that was being discussed. I'll give you a couple of examples. There's a Jewish author named Philo, and he is talking about the time when the, the 10th plague came on Egypt, and the Egyptians woke up and found their firstborn sons had all died. And Philo said, as so often happens in such cases, they thought their present condition was the beginning of greater evils, and they were filled with fear of the destruction of those who still live. Now, the specific example he's talking about is the death of the firstborn sons in the whole nation. But when he says, as so often happens in such cases, he can't mean as so often happens when everybody in the nation wakes up and finds their firstborn son dead, because that had never happened before. So in such cases must refer to any kind of sudden tragic event. It's clearly a broader reference than the specific example name. I'll mention one other one. In the uh, Greek author Lysias, who uh, died around 380 BC, he talks about a man named Phrynichus. And fr when Phrynichus had to pay a fine to the treasury, my father did not bring him his contribution of money. In such cases, we see the best proof of a man's friends. So does he mean you find out where, who your friends are when you have to pay a fine to the treasury? No, he means you find out who your friends are whenever you have a sudden unexpected need of money. Am I making sense there? Yeah, that, that's a really, that's a keen insight. That is really good. That's very helpful. So in all the literature, all the commentaries on 1 Corinthians, my teaching assistant and I could not find any commentator who had commented on that plural phrase. We found other examples of this. When Paul speaks of a specific example, it's limited to one case. He uses the singular in such a case or in such a one. But here, these plurals seem to have much broader reference. Well, my conclusion was in 1 Corinthians 7.15 that Paul says, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, that is, desertion by an unbeliever, and I think he has in mind adultery, as well because of Jesus' teaching. In cases that damage a marriage as severely as adultery or desertion by an unbeliever or other similar damaging situations, then divorce is allowed. So my decision to change my mind about the legitimacy of divorce in, in a case or a situation of ongoing very harmful abuse was based on a new understanding of the meaning of the words of Scripture. My decision was not based on my theological instinct. It was based on what I saw in Scripture that I don't think had been noticed before because people hadn't done the work of doing the research on that phrase in literature, in Greek literature generally. Until the last couple of decades, there wasn't any ability to do that because the electronic database was not available and was not able to be searched. Plus, it's a, a seemingly innocuous phrase. Like, it's almost, yes, a, it's exactly. almost a throwaway line, you think, and so you don't pay attention to it. That's right. It's, it's simple words, but when you put them together, they show a broader meaning. Dr. Grunham, prior to you reaching this conclusion, I'm curious what you pre previously believed about how abuse within a marriage ought to be addressed. That is clearly explained in my textbook, Christian Ethics, where I said, in cases of abuse, the church has to provide protection, 
church discipline if the abuser is a professing believer, possible separation, police intervention or court orders if necessary. The abuse certainly has to stop. And if it doesn't, then separation would be required. I also, I don't know if I mentioned that, but I did in my paper at the ETS meeting. There was an instance a number of years ago when we lived in Illinois where my wife and two teenage sons helped a woman move out of her home in the middle of the day while her husband was at work, moved to an undisclosed location to protect her from an abusive situation. And we found out about that. We moved away from Illinois. We came back 10 years later, and we found out that the husband had been severely repentant as a result of being shocked by his wife being gone when he came home. The marriage had been restored, and the, the abuse had stopped. That was a wonderful solution brought about by separation with the hope that the marriage be restored. And what I said in my paper is, of course, the first goal must always be the restoration of marriage, but the abuse must stop. Although I didn't see it as legit, I I felt bound by scripture to not say it was a reason for divorce. I think that's a helpful clarification because the assumption is now that you've changed your mind, you used to to believe that women should just take the abuse, but you've actually never held that view. No, exactly. So I think that's really important to clarify. I feel like the the rub for a lot of people in these situations has been, how do you know the abuse is going to stop, especially since from what I've understood when we've interviewed domestic violence prevention advocates over the years, often the abusers seemingly act genuinely remorseful about what they've done. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying that they're not being genuine to how they actually feel at that time. Just because they've shown a sense of contrition has not actually translated into necessarily them doing the work of learning how to, you know, have better anger management or how to control their emotions any better. I'm just wondering how you reconciled all of that, knowing some of the psychology of the, the people who are abusing. Even though I want to understand what the uh, domestic violence counselors are saying, and I don't want to disagree with the fact that many cases result in ongoing abuse, if that happens, then again, protection must be provided for the abused spouse. Well, now, of course, I think that divorce may even be permissible. I want to allow for the possibility of genuine change. I think the Holy Spirit does progressively sanctify us over time in our Christian lives. And Romans 6 talks about the fact that we should consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So I want to allow for the fact that even though it may not happen as often as we wish, I do know of a specific case where it did separation did bring restoration of the marriage. And I would hope that would happen in every case until we find out otherwise can kind of testify to that. And many men in, in uh, our culture, or maybe it's just in general, have a hard time figuring out how to deal with anger. And I know when I was younger, I just, I would fly off the handle and write angry emails or shout or yell in my home. Took a shock in my life of actually one of my superiors coming into my office and <laughs> dressing me down that made me, force me to think through, why, why do I do this? And I think it just takes time and like you said, prayer and just go. That was actually a pretty radical turning point for me. It was like turned it, turned it down to such a low level. It was, uh, it was actually a miracle almost in some ways. But I think a lot of men have to go through some point where they have to go, come on, buddy, get this together. What are you doing? There's a, a lot of it has to do with testosterone, has to do with social conditioning, lots of sorts of sinfulness. <laughs> so it is possible to change, but like you're saying, and like Morgan's pointed out, proof's in the pudding. And if, if it continues in the home, continued steps have to be taken, I would think. Dr. Grudem, I, I'm curious as well about when, when you were thinking specifically of abuse, if this was some Something that was limited to physical abuse, or you also saw it as something that would include verbal abuse, emotional abuse, spiritual abuse? 
Yes, I realize that those things are a little more difficult to categorize and to get an understanding of how severe the damage is to the abused spouse. But I do think that extreme, prolonged verbal and relational cruelty that is destroying a spouse's mental and emotional stability, that's something that, well, Morgan, what we're asking is, what should pastors and counselors say when asked, when they, when when someone asks them, does my situation merit seeking a divorce? I think that determination of substantial harm is more difficult, more subjective, but it's not impossible to make that determination. And I would say, yes, that kind of thing would, would, qualify, would qualify, at least in some cases, as well as credible threats of physical harm or murder. And in my paper at the Evangelical Theological Society, I mentioned other possible causes, incorrigible or recalcitrant or inveterate, incurable drug or alcohol addiction accompanied by regular lies, deception, thefts, and or violence that just actually destroyed a marriage, or incorrigible gambling addiction that has led to massive overwhelming indebtedness. And I'm aware of a situation in which that occurred, for instance. I think pornography addiction would also fit here, but I already in my my Christian ethics book included that under the meaning of sexual immorality in Matthew 19.9. So from both perspectives, a pornography addiction would also be a situation in which divorce would would be permissible. You had previously spoken about the fact that um, you'd become aware of some particular stories which had really affected you about this. You know, you also mentioned as well that you had previously helped out a woman who was in an abusive relationship with your hus- with her husband. But I- I'm curious if, if you can just kind of talk about what you have heard from people's personal accounts over the years and maybe why these stories resonated with you differently at different times and maybe what changed it specifically or what catalyzed specifically in you when you heard this most recent example. I'm hesitant to speak in more detail about any of the cases because your audience is quite wide and I, I wouldn't want people to realize I'm talking about them. So I, I'm, I'm going to skip that question if that's all right. Are you at all able to just speak about how it affected you, if not necessarily those people? In other words, like what, what how it softened or changed your heart? I understand not wanting to speak about the particularities of those okay. situations. Yes, that's a good that's a good way to put it. Morgan, what happened to me was there was a sense that I had that this is such a horrible situation. I just I I just wondered that could this really be the way that God wants one of his daughters or one of his sons to live for the rest of their, their life? I realize that there are some times when we are called to suffer because circumstances come on us and we can't escape from them. We can give a witness to society about our trust in God in the midst of suffering. But if the opportunity arises, there are several places in Scripture where God tells his people to escape from suffering. So on the one hand, 1 Peter 2.20 says, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. But on the other hand, God rescues his people from suffering and calls them to escape from it when possible. Matthew 6.13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's escaping from suffering. Or the Exodus in, in uh, the Old Testament, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Exodus 20, verse 2. That's a major event in the whole history of the Bible, God rescuing his people from bondage and slavery and suffering. And then 1 Corinthians 7, 21. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. So Paul is calling bondservants in the first century to take take a chance. If they have opportunity to become free, take it. Another case, Jesus said, if they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Paul's apostolic ministry, he went from city to city, and when the opposition became violent 
and intense, he would just leave the city and go to the next one. That happens again and again in the book of Acts. It seemed to me that there's a pattern. I think that went into my theological instinct on this. There's a pattern where there's a possibility to escape from prolonged suffering that God's heart and care and love for people sometimes will call them to, to escape in that way. That affected my understanding of these abusive marriage situations and was an incentive for me to look more closely at Scripture and especially 1 Corinthians 7.15. And that does require some pastoral sensitivities, because I think there are situations in which I think we would, the person would be legitimately, it would be legitimate for the person to flee from suffering, and we would all agree that that's a perfectly ethical thing to do, who nonetheless decide to remain for reasons of charity or love or faithfulness. And I've known couples in which this has been the case, where the in one case, I'm thinking in particular, the woman still has a tremendous amount of agency. She's not she's not doing it because she's browbeaten into it. She's doing it because her husband, although he verbally abuses her, she thinks her job as a Christian is to be a good witness to him. Now, there may come a point where she'll say, all right, that's enough. But I think there are occasions where we, we willingly enter into or allow the suffering to be a part of our experience. But again, when to do that? You probably need other people giving you advice about when you've overdone it. But I think you've made a good point that there's times to flee suffering and times to endure it. I think that's a really healthy tension in Scripture. Another example, Mark, would be a spouse with a long-term incurable disease. And the other spouse will stay and, of course, heroically care for this spouse who is ill. Now, that's a suffering situation, but it's one that God wants us to uh, persist in, in sickness and in health, part of our marriage vow. There are a number of Christian women who would believe that a very like narrow interpretation of divorce has ended up forcing them to stay in marriages, in abusive marriages, or risks being excommunicated by their congregation if they ended up trying to pursue a divorce. I'm curious, Dr. Grudem, what might you say to Christian women who are in this position who have grown angry at the church for seemingly not allowing them to seek relief from their circumstances? Well, I had some response already from more than one woman in the audience when I read this paper. It was a sense of profound thankfulness, one crying with tears of joy. My wife also was able to phone another person we know in another state and tell her that I had changed my mind. She had herself gotten a divorce against the counsel of some others in the church, and she was just rejoicing at it. So having a sense of thanksgiving that there are some voices in the church who say it is legitimate, possible, possibly legitimate, having some voices in the church that say it is permissible in some cases to seek a divorce in some abusive situations, I would hope that would cause some sense of relief and joy. What would you say to, I guess you asked me, Morgan, what I would counsel such a person to do, whether get my paper at uh, waynegrudem.com and give it to your pastor. I had more than one person after the presentation say, I came prepared to disagree with you, but you persuaded me. And I'm hoping that it will persuade other pastors and elder boards that there are situations in which divorce is is the right option to, to counsel. In your experience, are there any very, I wouldn't think there was very many, but do you know of pastors who still take the old, old line of saying a, a wife must just submit to her husband's abuse? In the name of Christ, does anyone actually believe that anymore? The more the more dramatic view. I don't know personally of anyone who says that. Margaret and I did know of someone who went to her pastor and told him about an abusive situation, and he did nothing about it. It's a tragic situation, and a lot of harm has been, has come from that. So I deeply regret that. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist 
was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. It really seems in a lot of these situations that there's a, a huge tension over someone's ability to change or not. And I, I think that that, <laughs> that is such a, a such a strong, I don't know, a strong challenge of our faith, because I think part of our faith is really, really believing that people have the capacity to repent and transform and live lives that look completely different because Jesus is a part of them. And at the same time, it can be really challenging if those changes seemingly don't happen at all or happen at a rate in which they can actually show up in the lives of other people that are affected by by that particular person. And so I I do find this discussion really interesting because I think all of us as Christians, we want to be the type of people that cheer for other people's restoration, other people's renewing their lives because of Jesus. And yet at the same time, you know, when you are in a position of church leadership or ministry deciding or counseling about when that person (laughs) might have changed or if they will never change is a lot harder. Plus, there's the issue of how you treat the offender in the case of uh, how is a church supposed to treat the the man who is abusive when he's trying to recover and struggling to do it. We have a similar situation with uh, sex offenders and their desire to start coming to church again. Churches are having a very difficult time figuring out how to deal with them because on the one hand, they're repentant. they, They want the gospel to change them. On the other hand, they don't want this person within 100 feet of their children or the opposite sex. It's a tough pastoral situation. I don't know if you have any insights there, Dr. Gruden. I would have to defer to wise veteran pastors and elder boards who have a lot more wisdom and experience in this area than I do as a professor. I can tell you what the Greek phrase means. (laughs) There you go. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I don't claim any special wisdom on how to deal with very difficult situations. That's a question of prayer for wisdom and In a multitude of counselors, there's wisdom, often discussion among leaders of the church. Another thing I found in my research was that people earlier in the history of the church had, in fact, argued for the legitimacy of divorce in some cases of abuse. There's a Puritan writer, a very well-known Puritan writer named William Ames, who was highly respected ethics instructor and writer, died in 1633. So he's writing around the year 1600, around the time the King James Version was published first. And he said, if one party drive away the other with great fierceness and cruelty, there is cause of desertion, and he is reputed the deserter. But if he obstinately neglects the uh, departure of the other, who is avoiding the imminent danger, he himself in that situation is the deserter. So William Ames is saying if someone is physically abusing his or her spouse so that the other person has to flee for self-protection, 
it's the abuser who is guilty of the desertion or the separation, not the person who has left. A marriage may be dissolved in those cases. I went back even earlier than the um, early Puritan period to Chrysostom, the church father who died in 407 AD, so writing in the late 300s AD and then early 400s AD. Chrysostom says this about a marriage in his commentary on 1 Corinthians. If day by day he punched you, punch thee, and keep up wars or fightings on this account, it is better to separate. And then he quotes Paul, but God has called us to peace. For it is the other party who furnished the ground of separation, even as he did who committed uncleanness. So he seems to be saying at least separation and perhaps divorce, where he's commenting on the same verse that I talked about. So people gave it that understanding from a different perspective, just saying self-protection requires fleeing the marriage. But they were saying that abuse is a legitimate ground for considering divorce. Well, since you mentioned Chrysostom, that solves it. That, you know, that seals it. My, look, <laughs> he's, he's one of my favorite church fathers. I wanted to say one other thing. We've been talking about one spouse abusing the other, and a couple of things need to be said. It is more often the husband who is the abuser, but not always. I'm aware of some situations where the wife has been the abusive spouse, and the husband has suffered, and I want to take account of that as well. Then another situation, that is sometimes it is the children who are suffering, sometimes suffer lifelong damage because of an abusive parent. After I made the presentation of that paper at the ETS meeting, a professor whom I'd known for a long time, told me that he had come from an abusive family. He has gotten over it with the Lord's help, but some of his siblings have never recovered for their entire life. So sometimes a marriage must be dissolved in order to protect the children. There's a lot of scars that come from these types of situations. So I I wanted to just ask you a question about a discussion that's been taking place in some complementarian circles in the past couple years where we've seen some complementarian women who have argued that an overemphasis on submission and Paul's teachings on submission end up leading wives to believe that they must submit to abusive husbands. I'm curious how you might respond to these arguments when it comes to Paul's teachings on submission. I don't think that anyone associated with counsel on biblical manhood and womanhood would say or has ever said a a wife who suffers abuse should do nothing about it but continue to suffer it because of the commands in the Bible to submit to one's husband. The entire last hour or so that we've been talking about this Morgan, I've been saying that the abuse must stop and the church must take steps to see that the abused spouse is protected. And saying just stay in the marriage and suffer is not loving or kind or biblical at all. Finer point that I that I think you have, would have an interesting answer to is it's the emphasis on submission. Talk about how complementarians understand what submission means, what the relationship of husband and wife mean. I mean, because the, the critics would say submission means a wife should do whatever she's told to do, even if it's abused, she's being abused. But I don't think you understand submission or the husband's responsibility to the wife in that that way. When Paul says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, that's the model that's held up for us. And the husband's leadership should be reflecting the way that Christ leads us and leads the church. He doesn't abuse us. He's never cruel to us. He loves us. He cares for us. That's the model that is held up for us in Scripture. Husbands should love their wives as Christ loves the church. Yeah, we're not questioning biblical, your your organizations, you know. You're you're questioning a misuse of it. It's Yeah, it's basically, that's how the critics 
critics look at it from the outside, and we wanted to give you an opportunity to clarify what submission does and doesn't mean, actually. Many issues in Scripture require two statements to summarize them. God is three persons, but God is one. Jesus is fully human and fully divine, etc. And I want to say two things. Husbands and wives are equal in personhood, in value before God, and value to the kingdom, equal, but different in roles in, in marriage. And there is a leadership role that belongs to husbands that the Bible quite clearly teaches, I believe. Now, there can be errors on both sides of that statement, of those two statements. The quality side of the argument can be pushed to an extreme where it obliterates any sense of leadership on the part of the husband, and I don't think that's biblical. But the submission part can be pushed to an abusive situation where abuse is justified or enduring abuse it should not be there were no remedy should be th- sought for enduring, enduring abuse. And that's also wrong. And I don't want to condone that at all. I don't want to teach against it. I have taught against it for years. The biblical teaching of male-female equality in value and importance and the biblical teaching of husband's leadership role in marriage and the wife's submission to that leadership role or uh, acknowledgement of that leadership role, both have to be affirmed. I'm saying that, Mark and Morgan, from now 50 years of a very good marriage, what is I now think, and Margaret and I both think, is a wonderful marriage. Have we had difficulties? Yes, not major ones, but we've had difficulties. But God has given us the blessing of a marriage, which I think, at least we seek to follow a biblical pattern. Yeah, I think the thing, interesting thing about that passage that I've always, I was a pastor for 10 years, and whenever I had an opportunity, opportunity to teach on it, I would note that Paul only spends a verse or two on the wife's submission. He spends, I don't know, five or six verses talking about how the (laughs) husband needs to love the wife. So why don't we put the emphasis there, gentlemen? (laughs) And I don't know if you were aware of this, Mark, but in 2001, after I had taught for 20 years in Illinois at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, I was a full professor. I had tenure. Margaret was dealing with some constant pain issues after an auto accident. And we visited Arizona in the hot, dry climate. She felt better. We came back again and she felt better again. And the cold and the humidity in Chicago, in the Chicago area, were aggravating her chronic pain issues. And so that's why I'm at Phoenix Seminary, because we moved here because I was seeking to protect Margaret from having to deal with that pain for, well, forever, for the, as long as as long as long she dealt with it. The day we were making the decision of whether to accept the offer to come to Phoenix Seminary or not, going from a seminary of 1,500 students to a seminary with 200 students, 65 faculty members to nine faculty members, the day we were discussing and trying to make a decision, on that very day in my regular reading through the Bible, I came to... Ephesians 5.28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves him, loves himself. I thought if I would move from my own body to escape chronic pain, I should, certainly should do that for the sake of Margaret. And so we're here, and God has blessed us and our time at Phoenix Seminary and our marriage and our church relationships here, and so we're thankful for that decision. But that was what motivated Ephesians 5, 28. Mark is like, would I move to Arizona, though? <laughs> <laughs> no, I understand his his point of view exactly. I mean, there are times—anybody who's married knows that there are times you will make a decision solely on the basis of the welfare of the spouse. Yep. So, Dr. Grudem, there are a number of pastors and church leaders who closely follow your work. What type of implications do you hope that this position that you've come to has on how they shepherd their congregations? Well, I would encourage pastors to first read the paper that I presented at the ETS meeting. The Christianity Today article, Wayne Grudem Changes His Mind About Divorce in Cases of Abuse, has a link to that paper 
the link takes people to my website, waynegrudem.com, where the paper is posted and anyone who wants to can download it. It's just nine pages. First thing is consider the argument and see whether you think it's persuasive and you yourself could see that some situations of abuse would divorce is a permissible option. And the second thing is, um, I guess I would say, Morgan, that I, I tried this argument out on two theology classes at Phoenix Seminary last spring. The people who liked it best and were just relieved by it were the pastors in the church in the, in the class. And at the ETS meeting, again, there were a number of pastors who said, thank you. I just had a pastor from a foreign country write to me just recently saying I had felt uneasy about the biblical, what I thought was the biblical position for years, but I couldn't see an alternative. He said, thank you. This is so helpful. So that's been the general reaction. Pastors who have dealt with people who are abused see the need for, or at least they see the value of this alternative understanding of a ground for divorce, and it seems right to them from their reading of scripture and from their um, dealing with real-life situations again and again, year after year. It uh, is a, a cause for much appreciation and thanksgiving. I, I should also say that nobody has disagreed with my understanding of the Greek phrase, except one person who came up to me two days later and had misunderstood the syntax of the Greek text. And then another another professor later pointed out that it might not be as wide an encompassment as, I'm going to just not go down that trail. Okay. Uh, I'm going to leave that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wandered off into a into a rabbit trail. Into deep, deep exegesis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. Well, thank you so much for joining us to unpack your views and talk about how they have shifted and go over the scripture passages. For our listeners who have comments or questions, you can send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com or you can go on Twitter where we are at at CT Podcasts. I would like to, to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by people who subscribe to Christianity Today magazine. And in our December issue, this is actually kind of a sentimental issue in many ways. I'm not sure if all of our listeners have been following the larger news about Mark's career trajectory, but Mark, maybe you want to give everyone a heads up in case they miss this information. I feel the Republicans that really don't have a very good field right now. I was hoping to run for president of the United States in the next election. But my <laughs> wife tells me I don't have a chance, so I'll probably give that up. In the meantime, I am retiring from Christianity today after 30 and a half years of being an editor at various magazines, Leadership Journal, Christian History, and Christianity Today since 2000. So this seems like an, uh, we have a new president who I think is doing an extraordinary job. I think it's time for him to be able to appoint his own his own editor-in-chief, which he's already done. Well, you'll hear about more of him in the future. In the meantime, I'm going off in the sunset to doing a variety of things, including I will continue to publish the galley report and do some writing here and there, probably some for Christianity Today, some for other magazines, write, continue to write books maybe. I kind of have a plan of writing a book a year, uh, but I won't <laughs> well, that's be... that's productive. Huh? That's very productive. Yeah, it shouldn't... I mean, if I don't have a job, that shouldn't be very difficult. I'm one of those people who I haven't learned the, the fine art of humility yet. I still think there are more things people need to hear from Mark Galley. So, <laughs> so the rest world will assured, not... if you thought that Mark was going to be, as he just said, riding off to the sunset, <laughs> actually it's still daylight. Yeah, I'll be riding off to the sunset. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, anyway. But I won't be doing quick to listen. So that'll be kind of sad because it's been a pleasure to work with Morgan. We annoy each other equally and enjoy each other <laughs> equally at times. <laughs> so... <laughs> 
<laughs> as you could probably tell. This is all getting around to Christianity Today, the December issue. There's a nice tribute to me by Ted Olson. But more to the point is I wrote the editorial. It's my last editorial. Anyone who's followed my writing will, will roll their eyes and say, oh, yeah, Mark Galley, it's about grace, blah, 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 blah. But I encourage you to read it because it's a, to me it summarizes what my kind of main theme has been for decades and how it presents itself in the future for our movement. Pick up the December issue if no other issue. That is possible if you want to become a subscriber order ct.com slash podcast order ct.com slash podcast you can find mark's editorial in our december issue as he said and you can read the last words by mark but apparently maybe not actually the last, last words. Word. the last editorial the last editorial yeah so you might want to send your condolences and cards to morgan at the beginning of the year because she'll be in tears and in mourning i'm sure without my presence here but she'll I, get over it i'll welcome the gifts from people <laughs> That feel sorry for me. Now is the time of the show we call Precious Moments, and everyone gets to share something that has brought them joy. I can already predict Mark's, but Mark can still go anyway. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I just spent five days in Mexico City with daughter, son-in-law, and grandson, and my wife. They gave as a present to my wife a food tour of Mexico City, their restaurant tours and food foodies. And I was there to go along for the ride and once in a while babysit the, my one-and-a-half-year-old grandchild. So the most splendid moment of the entire time was visiting, once again, I lived in Mexico 36 years ago, but visiting once again Las Mañanitas, is, which is in Cuernavaca, which is a splendid restaurant that is, after you enter off the street, you come into a beautiful garden, a small lawn area with a couple peacocks walking around <laughs> and the sun shining down and beautiful flowers and you, you have hors d'oeuvres out in the patio <laughs> and then you are escorted up to your table which is overlooking the garden you know, let's just put it this way we spent three and a half hours there and we decided to skip dessert <laughs> <laughs> it was really a blessing to just see god's creation of the, just the the food the the atmosphere, the everything. Well, you also went with the right people. So Dr. Grudem, Mark's daughter and son-in-law, actually own a restaurant in New Orleans. And so, oh, my goodness. It's always reversed? No, it's two. Yeah. Oh. They own two. Yeah. And they own two restaurants. Okay, yeah. my bad. So he went also with the right people who you can really appreciate and savor those types Although of Although we introduced this restaurant to them. Because my wife and I had visited it many times in, and they hadn't heard of it. How do they like it? Oh, man. They were like, <laughs> this is incredible. So, yeah. Yeah, that also feels good to impress the foodies, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark, where can people find you? So I published something called The Galley Report. It is uh, found at Christianity Today slash The Galley Report, G-A-L-L-I Report. I do a lot of reading every week, and I find articles that are of interest to me. That's about the only qualification for what appears in The Galley Report, but then I link to them and comment on them, and uh, some 20,000 readers seem to think it's well worth their time. You might think it worth your time as well. All right. Dr. Grudem, go ahead. Well, one thing that brought me a lot of joy this year is it's um, Margaret and I have celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary. Wow. Congratulations. Congratulations. We're so thankful to the Lord. What we did was we rented a house on a lake in outside of Alexandria, Minnesota, and all of our children and grandchildren came. So there were 11 of us all together in this house. The youngest was a six-year-old grandson. We went and found a go-kart track nearby, and we drove go-karts. And the next day, we went back and drove go-karts again <laughs> and did mini-golf and took a, our, our children 
as a wedding gift, hired a professional photographer to come and take a family picture of us, which we did. Then our six-year-old grandson had just been learning about pyramids. You know, he's saying he wanted to go to a pyramid. He wanted to go to a pyramid. Of course, <laughs> Egypt is, is a long distance. <laughs> Wouldn't you know it, in Alexandria, there was an escape room company that had an escape game that was based on a pyramid, and you have to try to get into the pyramid and find the name of the pharaoh. What are the so odds? <laughs> All of us went into this escape room, and it was 59 minutes past we solved the mystery and got out of the escape room so that was a lot of fun was grandpa in the go-kart too or were just watching oh yes of course <laughs> i love go-karts okay well there we go <laughs> Christian- my, uh, christianity today headline wayne grudem go-kart addict <laughs> <laughs> my youngest son who is a, is a high school teacher was complaining afterward that i had cut him off too quickly on the, <laughs> on the curves on the go-kart track. There you go. Good for you, Grandpa. You should teach those young'uns a lesson. Yes, exactly. Well, you have already listed your website, but why don't you give it to our listeners one more time, and I will also put it in the notes for the show. It's WayneGrudem.com. Wayne, G-R-U-D-E-M, as in Michael, dot com. So my precious moment is related to Dr. Grudem's when it comes to driving things. I was in Thailand the past two weeks and I learned how to drive a motorbike. Yay, how fun. (laughs) (laughs) It was really fun. Also, I was a little bit scared. Basically, at one point I told myself, I was like, okay, you can ride it in Chiang Mai. Chiang Mai is the second largest city in Bangkok. I was like, okay, you can ride it there, but you can't ride it at night. And of course, I like really wanted to see the sunset from this stupid park. And so <laughs> you see the sunset on the, from the top of the hill. That only means one thing. You have to go down the hill. In the dark. In the dark. Yeah. The, the nice thing about being a scooter is that unlike a car, so, it, you know, if you're in a car and you're in a single lane situation, it's really inconvenient a lot of times for people to pass you. But if you're being really slow (laughs) and on a motorbike going down, it is very easy for people to pass you and pass you they will. But that's okay because I am all right going a little bit slower when I'm going out of hell. Also, motorbikes are very fun and I wish that they were more prevalent in America. (laughs) Have you ridden one? Have either of you guys ridden one? Yeah. I mean, I used to own a motorcycle. I was with uh, Jen McGuire. who used to work here and I would ride our motorcycles to work in the spring and summer. Why'd you stop? My wife very kindly said to me one day, she didn't say I couldn't do it. She just said, you know, I really worry about you when you're on the motorcycle. And I took that as a hint of, ah, maybe I shouldn't be worrying her so. All right. (laughs) What about you, Dr. Grudem? I'm trying to remember, but I don't think I've ever ridden a motorbike. It's fun. I mean, oh, there are a lot of fun. It sounds fun. You almost talked me into it. You you just sit there, and then you, with the right hand, is the accelerator, and you pull it towards you, and then you just go. (laughs) (laughs) And sounds great. People there. I mean, I kind of understand why. So you like don't really look behind you before you change lanes, or it's very rare. You kind of just go. And assume that people are going to see you, which I'm not saying that Thailand is not a dangerous place to do this. But I am saying that what's interesting is that cars there are just so much more aware of motorbikes being a thing. So when I ride my bike here in Chicago, I think I often don't think cars are going to see me or expect to see me. But there, there's so many motorbikes that you don't really have to worry to the same degree about people seeing you or not. That's what I learned after driving a motorbike for five days. There you go. Now you're an expert, of course. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for recognizing that. All right. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. 
That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. It's produced by myself and Matt Lindor. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. We are there. You can also leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. I was reading some of the reviews over the weekend. Thank you, everyone, who has said such kind things about the show. We really appreciate it. You can support the show by becoming a subscriber at orderct.com slash podcasts. And we will see you all next week. Bye.